Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Dean Emeritus Eugene R. Milheiser participated in hundreds of appeals, tried scores of criminal cases, and served in multiple leadership positions as an Army Judge Advocate. For three years, he held a teaching appointment at the Judge Advocate General School at the University of Virginia. In 2001, he joined the Ava Maria faculty, and his course offerings have included criminal procedure, criminal law, national security law, and military law. Dean Emeritus Milheiser has been an invited presenter at law schools across the country, and his legal scholarship has been published in many prestigious law journals. In May 2006, he was appointed Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, and in April 2009, he was appointed Acting Dean of the Law School. In January 2010, he was appointed the law school's second president and dean, and served in that position until his return to full-time teaching in the summer of 2014. So we're almost at six o'clock and Victor, I, there's so many people on, I don't, oh, there you are, Victor. Okay. So um, I'm just going to say welcome to our Zoom chat with, do you like to be called Eugene or Gene? Gene. Gene. M- Milheiser? Right. Okay. So this this is Gene Miller, and he is the author of the book, Dissecting Anatomy of a... And like I said, so I would imagine we'll get more people on as we are doing the introductions, but I'm glad to see everybody. We had a month off for July, and it's nice to see everybody back. And next month, we're going to be meeting with Ann Dahlman to talk about her book, Katie and the, which one is it, Victor? Uh, Virtual. She's written, she's on her third book. I'll get it to show everybody the cover in a minute. So um, I do hope, I know a lot of people, you've never been to one of our talks before. I hope you have such a good time. You will come back. Um, The book for next month is not long. It's a middle school. It's written for like baby middle school kids. It might take you a couple hours and it's really good. Um, Anne is actually a two-time UP Notable Award winner, and there's not many of those, are there, Victor? Uh, three, maybe, tops. Yeah, so she she's a good author, so you will enjoy her talk. Now, before we get over to Jean, Victor, would you like to talk to us about any news you have from um, UPA, UPA? I would. Uh, we are currently gathering materials for UP reader number eight. I'm holding up UP reader number seven in front of me. This is our annual anthology. And uh, I know it seems like a long way away, but there's basically 90 days left. If you wanna write a story or share a personal memoir, story from your childhood, anything like that, you are welcome to submit your work to UP reader. We only ask that you become a member of the Upper Peninsula Publishers and Authors Association. That's UPPAA.org. Now, if you join us, uh, low price of membership, $40 for a year, gets you uh, the chance to submit your work to UP Reader, and you get to attend our spring conference in Marquette on May 18th, 2024, at absolutely no charge. And there's loads and loads of member benefits. So we hope if, if you're a writer or you want to be a writer, 
We hope that you'll join us at uh, UPPA. You need to eat something first. And I will wait for Evelyn to come back from the popsicle. I'm really excited to have uh, 15 people on so far, and people are still joining. So it's, it's going to be a great. There we are. Back to you, Evelyn. Ah, thank you, thank you for um, covering there for a moment for me. Like I brought this. Oh, I can't if he has seen that. Have you seen this, Gene? Um, I'm trying to. Oh, Anatomy 59. Yes, yes, I have. This is a uh, a PBS special they did yes. on the making of the motion picture. Barb brought that in tonight. So, um, like, uh, people are going to keep coming on, and so I, I'd be. I know it's a little rude, but I'm not going to wait for everybody. We're going to get started. And I think they'll figure out what we're doing. So Jean, thank you for coming tonight to talk about your book. Um, I read it, I found it very interesting. I thought it was really clever how it kind of talked about John Volkner, the person, then it went into the book, then it went into the movie. And here comes my mom, she's handing me the book right now. Um, and then it went into the law. And then your own personal story, which was very, a really good tidbit. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Gene. Thank you for coming tonight. Well, thank you. And, um, you know, I've, I'm, a, I'm a law professor, so I talk to a lot of groups. This is the first author group that I've ever talked with. So um, I hope you bear with me. I hope the presentation is uh, appropriately designed for this group. Um, what I'm going to try to do now is my best to screen share because I have some PowerPoints that I would like to share with you. So um, are you all seeing the screen? Yes. Got you. Okay. Then uh, why don't we, we kick it off? I've got um, quite a few slides, but I'm going to go through them quickly and just sort of talk as I go through them. And I wanna make sure I leave time at the end, certainly for questions or discussion or that type of thing. So the name of my book is Dissecting Anatomy of a Murder. And that involves the real life crime and trial, the novel, the film, and then my book about all of this is including some legal commentary at the end. So first, why did I write this book? Well, uh, for my money, it's the greatest lawyer war story ever told, and lawyers love to tell war stories. Um, for my money, it's the best courtroom film ever made. I know people have their different personal favorites. Some people would talk about To Kill a Mockingbird, for example. I found this movie to be much more authentic and true than that movie. Um, both the film and the book were inspirations that led me to law school and my career. When I was in high school, I saw the film Anatomy of a Murder, and I was um, just really, really impressed with that. My mother was a librarian, so I had her get the novel for me, and I read the novel and both of those led, led me to law school. And I'm also intrigued because as a law professor, I think Volker's work and the movie 
uh, has all sorts of moral and ethical and legal and professionalism questions in it that's great subject for a law professor to address with law students. And, and I try to do that with the classes that I teach. So this is the order of the main sections of the book. And when I talk to law students or lawyers, I focus a lot on the last section you see there, the commentary and the reflections. But today I'll leave that for questions if anybody has anything they wanna talk about there. And I wanna focus on the first five sections of the book, the biography, the author, the real life homicide, the real life trial, the novel, and then the film. So first, a brief biography about the author, John Volker. He was born in Ishpeming. He was educated uh, first at Northern Michigan and then received his undergraduate and law degree from the University of Michigan, as I did, as a matter of fact, and practiced law first in Chicago for a short time and then in Marquette. Now, I, don't, I know I don't have to tell this audience where Ishpeming is, but when I speak in other parts of the country, especially down in Florida, they've never heard of it before. So I show them this map. I, I've included that in case we have some people joining us from other areas of the country. But there's where Ishpeming is located. It's in the Upper Peninsula on Lake Superior. Uh, John Volker once wrote that Ishpeming had more churches per capita than any other city in the state of Michigan. And it had many more saloons than it had churches. Uh, ben Gazzara, who played Lieutenant Mannion, the defendant in the movie, when he arrived by train in Ishpeming and the first time he walked around the town, he was struck by the fact, and this is a quote, that there are five bars on every street and each one were packed with people drinking. So that gives you an idea of what the culture was at that time. It was a mining town. It was populated by miners. They worked hard and they drank hard. This is a picture of the main street of Ishpeming about the time that John was a child. And this is what it looked like when the movie was shot in the 50s. And you can see, except for the models of the cars and some of the traffic lights and street lights, it's essentially unchanged. Ishpeming is literally built on iron ore mining. The cliff mine runs under the city the town was populated mostly by miners and people who serviced the miners. Um, you can hear the train uh, bells and whistles when you watch the movie, when people walk in and out of the law offices and Paul Beagler's home that was John Volker's home in real life. Uh, twice a day, they would set off a large explosion in the mine to dislodge rock and iron ore underneath. And it was so loud that it would shake paintings on the wall and glassware and cabinets. And people knew it was coming every day, twice a day, like clockwork. There are hundreds, if not thousands of fascinating stories about people at that time. Um, I'll just, one brief digression. I'll just mention a few words about Henry Rusi. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of him. He's a Finnish immigrant. He was a miner. He was trapped in a cave -in with about a dozen other miners. I think Rusi was the only one to survive. His skull was severely crushed and nobody thought he would survive the injuries. 
Well, he wound up surviving. He opened the first gas station in Ishpeming and was later elected mayor of the town. And this is just one of the fascinating stories from a very different time. If you look at the hats that the miners are wearing, you can see they have candles on their hats. Now, I don't have to tell you what this is if you're from the Upper Peninsula, but when I show this photograph to audiences in Florida, they wondered if some washing machines had uh, gone bad or something, but that is not soap suds, that's snow. And uh, this is just an idea of what Ishpeming can be like. Anatomy was filmed in early March, but the cast was from Hollywood and California. Um, and people came down with pneumonia and were sick with colds. And, and this is part of the reason why. So Volker was the local prosecutor. He was elected to seven two-year terms. Uh, he was later appointed to the Michigan Supreme Court. And about the same time that he was appointed to the Michigan Supreme Court, Anatomy of a Murder, the novel was released. So within the span of less than a year, Volker went from a struggling lawyer who had been defeated as prosecutor and now was scrambling for cases as a defense counsel and in private practice to a justice on the Michigan Supreme Court and a best-selling author. This is John's parents. George and Annie. Uh, George was much older than Annie. George had been previously married and had three sons and his first wife died. Uh, he was a saloon keeper in Ishpeming. Annie was, I said, much younger, although she was 29 years old when they got married, which was the spinster for, for in those times. Um, and after they married, they had four children, three boys and a daughter. This is a picture of the Volker family. And George, that's George there with the, uh, excuse me, John with the arrow pointing at him. He was the, the baby of the family. You can see George and Annie, the parents there. The child you don't see is Margaret. Margaret was the second to youngest, the only daughter, and she died at a very early age. And Part of the reason that Annie doted on George, uh, John and was so protective of John was that she lost Annie as a child shortly uh, before John was born. This is John's home in Ishpeming. It's still there. Um, he no longer lives there. He rented it out for a while. He moved to a new home that he built with the funds he received from Anatomy of a Murder. Uh, no longer uh, the family, the home is no longer in the family's interest, but it is, it's right there. It's on Barnum Street. If you listen to Jimmy Stewart talk about the address of his home, it's also Barnum Street. This is the Carnegie Library. This is where John's mother, Annie, worked as a librarian. She was also a piano teacher. If you look to the right side of the photo, you can see the edge of a house and Volker's home was about two homes further down the street. So the library was literally two or three doors down. When John wasn't at school, he split his time at the library where he was a voracious reader. Some people said, I assume with some exaggeration that he read every book in the library. And the other place he spent his time was at his father's saloon where he swept the floor, cleaned tables, and learned to acquire a taste 
for bourbon and became a great cribbage player. Now, when John got old enough, he could go to other saloons in Ishpeming besides his father's. This is Polly's Rainbow Bar, where he spent a lot of time, played cribbage there. He would gamble a lot on cribbage and use the proceeds to buy bourbon and a steak every now and then. Uh, Polly's was a traditional type of saloon you saw in Ishpeming up at that time. No women were allowed inside. There were no stools or chairs. You just bellied up to the bar. And it said that if a newcomer dared to order food, the bartender would say, where the hell do you think you are, Burger King? We don't have food here. All we have is drink. This is John later in life with his wife, Grace. Grace was sort of the glue who held the family together. Interesting story on how John met Grace. John was a law student at the University of Michigan here. And Grace was the date of someone who went to a dance that the law school was sponsoring. She was the freshman at the time. John wrote in his journals that the first time he saw her, uh, he, he knew that she was the one. He followed her around the whole dance like a Doberman pincher. There's a, one event that happened during the dance, which is kind of notable. John was taken away from Grace when a bunch of engineering students raided the law school dance and started throwing stink bombs trying to disrupt the dance. John got into it with one of the engineers. They tumbled down the stairs together. Blows were exchanged. Next morning, John got up and he saw a note pinned to the bulletin board that said that Dean Bates, the law school dean, wanted to see him. Uh, John feared that he was going to be disciplined, maybe even expelled. He went to Dean Bates's office and Bates got up from behind his desk, walked around, shook his hand and said, way to give it to those engineers. Um, John was so grateful, uh, and he later dedicated one of his books to Dean Bates. The family gave me uh, complete access to all of uh, Volker's papers, his journals, and everything else that is stored in the archives at Northern Michigan University. This is not from one of the journals. It's a quote from one of his books, Troubleshooter. But I think it really, um, I'm not gonna read it to you. Uh, you can take a look at it if you want, but it gives you an idea how John loved the Upper Peninsula and hated cities. But he bit the bullet and moved to Chicago when he married Grace. Grace had to drop out of school early to go care for relatives who were ill in her family. She came from Chicago from a prominent family. Her father was a banker. John conducted a long distance um, relationship with her for about a year and a half and then moved to Chicago and married her. He worked in a law office down there, but he never liked city life, longed to come back to the Upper Peninsula. But there was one particular event that I think was the turning point that, that, or the tipping point, if you will, that led him to go back to the Upper Peninsula. This is a picture of John when he was a young child. And John had a very distant type of relationship with his father. Um, his father was not physically abusive with John, like he was allegedly abusive with some of the other sons, but he certainly didn't support John academic or his academics or his interest in music. This was all his mother, Annie, who did this. Well, 
John and Grace had three sons and then a daughter. And the daughter and three, excuse me, three daughters and a son. The youngest child was a son named Robert, after his uh, brother who was a hero, a pilot who died in the war. And Robert died at a very early age in a Chicago hospital. It was described as surgical compl complications and the effects of anesthetics. And John commissioned a painting of his son. And this painting hung over his bed. It was the first thing John saw every morning when he got up, the last thing he saw every evening when he went to bed. And when I went to John's home, I got to know the family, his daughters and son-in-law very well. I went to the home, I had dinner, I toured the home and I saw the painting and they allowed me to take a picture of the painting and share it with you. So here's the painting that John commissioned of his son. Now they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Just, just look at the similarity between the two of these. John was devastated when his son died. He, I think, saw a lost opportunity to be the father to his son that he never had. And this was the last straw that led him to return back to the Upper Peninsula. So here's John in court as a young man. He was elected to seven two-year terms as prosecutor up in Marquette. And John was a very fine lawyer. I've read the transcript of the trial that Anatomy of Murder was based on. I've read his Supreme Court opinions. He's a very, very fine lawyer. But his first love was always fly fishing. And he described the law as a necessary evil to make some money uh, so that he could afford to fly fish. John ran for Congress unsuccessfully. He was a Democrat in a largely Republican area. Um, one interesting story about him on the campaign trail, John was not a politician. He, uh, in fact, he disliked politicians. Most of his campaign events were fly fishing demonstrations. But apparently they had an event up there every year called the Baby Parade. And I don't know if anybody's ever heard of this, but the Baby Parade is where grown men would dress in baby costumes and then march down Main Street and crowds would gather on each side to see them. Well, John saw this as a tremendous opportunity to campaign. So he hired this guy to put on a baby care a costume. They put him in a carriage and they gave him leaflets, some in English, some in Finnish that he would toss out that said Volker for Congress. Well, the guy got drunk and never showed up. But undeterred, John put on the baby costume himself and was pushed down Main Street, tossing out the leaflets. John was appointed to the Supreme Court, Michigan Supreme Court. Interesting story how this happened too. Soapy Williams was the governor of Michigan at the time and there was a vacant seat and Williams wanted to restore the tradition of having one justice from the Upper Peninsula. So he formed this committee and had several candidates basically interview for the job. And there was a set of prepared questions that each of the candidates were asked. And one of the questions was, why do you want to be a justice on the Michigan Supreme Court? Well, when it was Volcker's turn and he was asked the question, he said, well, in all honesty, I need the money. 
Well, this was reported back to Governor Williams, who was so taken by Volcker's candor that he named him to the Michigan Supreme Court. Let me say a few words about the true life homicide. Uh, late July of 52, Lieutenant Coleman Peterson shot and killed Mike Chenoweth at the Lumberjack Tavern in Big Bay, Michigan. Peterson's wife, Charlotte, claimed that Chenoweth raped her. Chenoweth told his friends and a business partner that the sex between the two was consensual. So you probably all know where Big Bay is, but just in case you don't, um, it is northwest of Marquette on the Lake Superior coast. Uh, used to be a lot of lumbering that went on there at the time, in the 50s, all the lumber had been taken out. It was basically a, a tourist area and a place to go fishing. Well, of course, the murder was big news. This is the Marquette uh, paper, but it was also covered regionally uh, almost daily by Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee papers. This is a photograph of Chenoweth, the victim. Here's a photograph of Peterson, the defendant, but I've got a better photograph of each of them that I'll show you. So here's Mike Chenoweth, who was quite a character. He's a former Michigan State police officer who was kicked out of the state police in disgrace for misconduct, made his way up to the Upper Peninsula. He was a short guy. Uh, in fact, he had to get a height waiver to be able to join the state police in the first place. Um, he presumably got the height waiver because he was such a good shot. He used to do pistol demonstrations, shoot close pins off lines, and those types of things. He was a very polarizing character. A lot of people loved Chenoweth. A lot of people hated him. Uh, Chenoweth is reputed to have raped a couple of women up in the Upper Peninsula, but he was never tried or even arrested for those incidents. This is Lieutenant Peterson, the defendant. This photograph was taken shortly after his arrest. He was in the Upper Peninsula doing artillery training on the Lake Superior Coast. He was a highly decorated Korean War veteran. He was a quiet guy, kind of a sullen guy. This is his wife, Charlotte. This was taken shortly after the lieutenant's arrest. You can still see the marks on her face. She was from Texas. She was a big character with big hair. Um, the kind way to describe her, the people described her up there was as someone who was very flirty. Um, other people thought that she was promiscuous and the people up there were really divided on whether she was raped or had consensual sex with Chenoweth. Now, clearly she was beaten but the prosecution's theory was not that Chenoweth beat her when he raped her, but that Lieutenant Peterson beat her because he believed she was cheating on him. And Lieutenant Peterson and Charlotte admitted that when she got back to their trailer after the alleged rape, he did slap her and have her swear that a rape occurred on the rosary. He said to calm her down, the prosecution said, because he didn't believe her. And there had been earlier incidents where Peterson had struck another soldier who he thought was paying too much attention to his wife. 
So here you see Volker and Peterson and Charlotte. Uh, there's the Perotti cigar. More about the Perotti a little bit later. This is their dog, George. And surprisingly, dog George kind of plays a crucial role in the trial. Here she is with George with a flashlight in George's mouth. If you saw the movie, you see where uh, her dog turns on a light and leads in real life Mrs. Peterson in the movie Mrs. Mannion through an opening in the fence back to their trailer in the trailer park after she was allegedly raped. Uh, this happened in real life. Uh, in the movie, you see a demonstration in the courtroom where this happened. And in the real life trial, there was a demonstration in the courtroom of this very thing. This is the Peterson's trailer. It's located in Perkins Trailer Park, which is still in operation in Big Bay. And it is just down the road and across the street from the Lumberjack Tavern, which is still there. And this was where the shooting and killing took place. This is what was known as the Big Bay Inn. It was called the Thunder Bay Inn for purposes of the movie. It's since been renamed Thunder Bay Inn. The arrow is pointing to an addition that was built for purposes of the movie. And even on the accelerated schedule, the addition wasn't completed in time in the movie. There was a dirt floor in there when the movie was filmed. Pete uh, Preminger, the director, had the inn painted pink because he thought that showed up better on black and white filming than a white-sided building would. So this is a map of Big Bay, and you can see how close the Lumberjack Tavern is to Perkins Park. So what happened is Lieutenant Peterson came home late from training, basically went to sleep. Mrs. Peterson uh, left her trailer, walked across the road over to the Lumberjack Tavern where she played pinball with Chenoweth for most of the evening. Uh, they drank together, they played pinball together. Uh, Chenoweth offered her a ride home, she accepted. And then here's where the stories diverge. Uh, he pulled down, according to Mrs. Peterson, uh, he pulled down a, a rolled fire road, a fire trail road, and raped her, tried to rape her a second time, and she escaped. According to Chenoweth, they had consensual sex there. Well, once she got back to the trailer, of course, Lieutenant Peterson woke up. Uh, she was hysterical. She was all disheveled. Uh, Peterson gets a Luger, which was a war souvenir. He took off a, a soldier during the war, got in his car, drove over to the Lumberjack Tavern, and shot and killed Chenoweth. So here's Chenoweth after he was shot, laying on the floor behind the bar. Peterson came in the side entrance and was firing as he entered. He fired six shots. The first two while Chenoweth was standing behind the bar. One certainly hit Chenoweth and knocked him to the floor. Another one either just grazed his neck or missed his neck. And then Peterson walked over, stood on the bar rail, reached over and fired four more shots into Chenoweth. He died immediately. This is the bar, uh, the, the bar behind uh, where, Chenoweth, where Chenoweth was shot. You can see the damage to the mirror there. Of course, when witnesses say when Peterson walked in and started shooting, 
Uh, everybody scrambled and ran out of the bar and hid in the men's room and the ladies' room, except for one old guy who just sat at his table drinking. And later, when he was interviewed by the police, he said the thing that really made him upset was not that Chenoweth died, but that they ruined a bottle of top shelf liquor. This is Chenoweth's gun that he never had a chance to draw. You can see that it's engraved. And this is the gun that Peterson used to kill him. It's presently in the archives at Northern Michigan, and uh, I got a chance to, to look at it. When the person who bought the bar from Chenoweth, name's Bourgeois, remodeled the lumberjack, um, and he moved the bar, this is a piece of tin behind the mirror, and you can see the bullet hole in it. So now a few words about the murder trial. It began in September 15th, 1952. The trial lasted eight days. It was tried in the historic Marquette Courthouse. I think it's a beautiful building. Volker was very critical of it. If you read the novel Anatomy, he was very insulting about the architecture of it. I think it's spectacular. Peterson was acquitted because of a defense of temporary insanity, and it was an unusual version of temporary insanity. Usually if people are acquitted because of insanity, which is rare to begin with, it's because they can't tell the difference between right and wrong, basically. Well, Peterson certainly could tell the difference between right and wrong, and his insanity had to be temporary because he was lucid before and after the shooting, so they went with a version of insanity that was based on irresistible impulse. In other words, he knew it was wrong, but he couldn't control his behavior. And that was the first time that that was tried in Michigan for probably close to 100 years. Here's Volker on the steps of the courthouse at the time that the trial took place. Here is a picture of what the courthouse looked at that like at that time. And this is a more recent picture of it that I took when I was up there a few years ago. And this is a picture of the large dome that sits atop the courthouse, which I think is just spectacular. It's never shown in the movie. Here's Ben Gazzara who plays the defendant. Um, they, he, this, he was not in jail. This was supposed to be the jail. This was just a room in the court building where carpenters took some uh, wood and made fashion bars and they painted it dark to look like metal. These are the prosecutors in the case. Edmund Thomas was a local guy. He's the one who had defeated Volker as prosecutor just a short time before the trial, months before. If Volker had won that close election, then he would have prosecuted the case rather than defending it. Uh, Thomas was a bit of a local celebrity. He played varsity basketball at the University of Michigan. He was a tall guy, good looking guy. By all accounts, not a very good lawyer, but he knew enough to know that he was out of his depth. So he wrote the attorney general and asked for help. And they sent up Irving Beatty, an assistant attorney general, experienced prosecutor, to help prosecute the case. George C. Scott played the Irvin Beatty character in the film. This is the jury that tried the case. The jury was composed of 11 men and one woman. You can see two women in the back 
One of the women was an alternate jury juror. I have the arrow pointing to Max Muley. He was by far the youngest of the jurors, and he provided a wonderful oral history years later of the jury deliberation, which was used a lot, uh, that I drew upon a lot when I wrote the book. For some reason, the record of trial does not include a transcript of the closing arguments by counsel, but in going through Volcker's notes and uh, files, I was able to see his notes of the closing arguments, and this is a note of part of his closing arguments. That, of course, was just handwritten in those days. Okay, a few words about the writing of the novel. First of all, you notice he used the pen name Robert Traver. Traver was his mother's maiden name. Robert was the name of his the brother who died in the plane crash who he admired so much. He also named his son Robert. Volker said he used a pen name because he didn't want the taxpayers to think he was writing on the job rather than performing as a prosecutor. And there may be some truth to that, but even long before Volker was a prosecutor, he used a, used a pen name. He was someone who um, uh, sort of shied away from the limelight. So he started the novel in 53. The first version, he was a prosecutor. And then in the later version, he became the defense counsel. Took him three years to write it. Uh, the primary reason why it took so long is he kept getting interrupted by fishing season every year and he didn't do much writing during fishing season. His first manuscript was about three times as long as any manuscript that was published at the time. With the help of an editor friend, he cut it in half. It was still very long by contemporary standards, but it was finally accepted for publication. Before Anatomy, Volker had been a very fine writer, but a commercially unsuccessful writer. He once said that all of his fans could fit into a phone booth. Well, how did Volker go about writing the novel? What he would do is he would handwrite a chapter. He would give it to a secretary who would type it. She would give it back to him. And then he would make changes. Here you see black and blue uh, pencil and pen. I've seen some of the pages that have uh, not only pencil and blue pen, but also green and red pen. Um, it would go back and forth between the secretary and Volker until he finally got something that was approaching a final draft. Uh, arrows pointing all over the place. Volker once said that his secretary was the first person to translate his novel into English. Uh, he kept his novel stored, the manuscript stored in a safe. When I first read that, I thought he was worried about people stealing it, but that wasn't it. Apparently, in those days, there was a, a lot of homes would be destroyed by fire. And this was at a time before you had computer backups and clouds and that. So this is the way he preserved the only copy of his book. So it was a bestseller. Here, here is the Chicago paper. Here's the Milwaukee paper. Um, it was 65 weeks on the bestseller list, which was a record at the time. It was 29 weeks as number one, which is still a record. And not only was it an extremely popular book, but it was a very well-reviewed book. This is an example of one review, and I'll leave it up there so you can take a, a look at it if you'd like. Um, 
you know, my book is sold on Amazon and there's some reviews. And if anyone is moved to write anything, even approaching how complimentary this is, I would be eternally grateful if you would, if you ever wanted to do that. Look at the last line there. The author has invested the entire drama with dignity, decency, honesty, and emotional voltage. So Volker became a celebrity. Here he is on the Life magazine. He appeared on the Johnny Carson show and on other television shows and print media. Uh, he stepped down from the Supreme Court. Uh, financially, he no longer had to do it. He didn't want to leave the Upper Peninsula and it gave him a lot more time to do his fly fishing. He did run for a second term, so he would be elected and then Governor Williams could keep the seat in Democrat hands. Yeah, let me talk a little bit about the making of the movie. It was a box office smash. It was a critical success. It has the distinction of being the first Hollywood film ever shot entirely on location. It was the first movie to ever have a crime where the crime scene in the movie was the actual crime scene. The courtroom scene was the actual courtroom. And in fact, Volker's home was used as his office. All-star cast, including Jimmy Stewart, Lee Remick, George C. Scott, George Welsh. We'll talk a little bit about Welsh in a moment. It garnered a lot of awards, many more nominations and awards. It had the misfortune of coming out the same year as Ben-Hur, which largely swept the Academy Awards. Volker once said that Anatomy of a Murder lost out to Charlton Heston's pecs. So here's a publicity shot from the movie. And there's Volker front and center. There's Jimmy Stewart who played Paul Beagler, the defense counsel. George C. Scott who played Claude Dancer, the attorney from Lansing. There's Brooks West, who was the local prosecutor, and Lee Remick, who play, played Laura Mannion, the defendant's wife. There's Otto Preminger, who was the producer and the director. But the cast was also a very deep and rich cast. You had Eve Arden. You might remember her from Our Miss Brooks. She was married in real life to Brooks West, who played the, the local prosecutor. Is Ben Gazzara, who played the defendant in his first movie role. And there's Murray Hamilton, who played um, the deceased's friend and barkeeper. Anybody remember Murray Hamilton from any other roles? Yeah, yeah. He, was the, he was the mayor in Jaws. Oh, yeah, Jaws. And other people on the cast, you had Floyd the Barber from the Andy Griffith Show and Mr. Wilson from Dennis the Menace, among others. When Vol Volker was a novice to all of this, he didn't even know to negotiate for any sort of rights on the movie. Preminger was very fair and very generous with him and made sure that Volker was very well compensated. Volker didn't know to negotiate any sort of creative control of the movie, but that said, he was on the set every day. The cast and crew called him Judgy. He was always correcting and making sure that the movie was authentic to the way a real trial would be. And Preminger and Volker became very close friends. 
Here's Preminger in the middle with Stewart on the left and you see Volker on the right. First time that Jimmy Stewart saw, saw Volker, he says, you look just like John Wayne. And people had said that to him a lot. Grace, his wife, loved it when people said it and she thought there was quite a resemblance. And if you look at Volker at that stage in his life with John Wayne at that time, you can see that there is quite a resemblance. Now, Volker wanted John Wayne to play the lead, but Preminger always wanted Jimmy Stewart to do it. And I think for a couple of reasons, first of all, Stewart was exceptionally well suited for the role, but also Preminger besides being the director was the producer and he wanted the movie to make money and Stewart was good for the box office. So Stewart um, by all accounts was an incredibly professional actor. He would go back to his room every night, spend the night studying lines. He wouldn't go out and party or anything. The only time he blew up on the set involved the Perotti cigar. Volker always had one of these small Italian cigars in his mouth. In the movie, they refer to it as an Italian stinkweed. So Volker's character, uh, Beagler would always smoke the cigar but there was one scene where Stewart just couldn't get the thing lit and he blew up and they called time out and everybody had to pause and they rested for a while and Volker got with Stewart and showed him how to light the cigar. George C. Scott uh, was nominated for an Academy Award. He played Claude Dancer, the prosecutor. He's from Detroit. And this was really his first important movie role. He was primarily a stage actor. Before this movie, he went on, of course, to win the Academy Award in Patton. A little bit about Joseph Welch. Uh, Preminger originally thought about Spencer Tracy or Burl Ives to be the judge, but he settled on Welch, I think, for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, for reasons I'll explain in a minute, Welch had the gravitas to really be a judge, especially when you have Jimmy Stewart and George C. Scott going at each other. But also, he was great box office because Welsh was probably the most famous lawyer in the United States at that time. He represented the army at the McCarthy hearings. He famously has the quote, at long last, have you no sense of decency, which was viewed as the beginning of the end of McCarthyism, uh, appeared on the cover of Life magazine. He was a true celebrity. A lot of people don't know this. He was the highest paid actor in the movie. He got paid more than Stewart got paid. And he had one other condition for doing the role. His wife had to be in the movie. They were newly married. And I'm not able, I haven't been able to find a still of her. But when, if you watch the film and you look at the jury, the woman in the polka dot dress in the front row and all the way over to the end is Welsh's wife. Lee Remick played Laura Mannion. She was not Preminger's first choice. He initially offered Remick the second female lead, Mary Pallant. She turned him down. Uh, who Preminger wanted was Lana Turner. But they butted heads because Turner insisted on having designer gowns designed by her personal designer. And Preminger said an army wife is not going to be wearing designer gowns. So then he went to Remick, who had appeared in only one movie, A Face in the Crowd, but Preminger was quite taken with her. They had lunch in Hollywood. Remick was eight months pregnant at the time. Preminger offered her the part, and she immediately 
accepted. And during the filming, she after she had given birth a few months earlier, her baby was on the set with a nanny throughout the entire filming of the movie. Here's Catherine Crosby, who plays Mary Pallant. The reason I'm showing you this is Volker is showing her how to tie a fishing fly. And the cast and crew really became part of the community in Marquette. They judged ski competitions. Uh, Duke Ellington played at sorority and fraternity dances. They gave money to charity. Arthur O'Connell uh, furnished the rectory and the church, uh, carpeted the rectory and the church. And it was a great boon to the economy. Preminger, although he could get extras for much less, insisted that they get paid the same rate as they were in Hollywood, $10 a day. Volker was a bit of a musician himself. Here he is with Duke Ellington. Ellington was the first African-American to win a Grammy Award for music, for movie score, and also the first jazz movie score to ever win an Academy Award. Uh, one of Volker's daughters told me a really funny story. Uh, Ellington was over at the house with some other guests, and uh, after they had dinner, Volker asked him if he would play a little on the piano, and Ellington says, well, I'm really, I, I like to record it. Volker just got a new tape recorder. And Ellington said, well, my, my record contract really doesn't allow you to record it. And Volker asked again, and Ellington said, so, okay, I'll do it. So Volker took out his new tape recorder and Ellington started playing and Volker stopped him and he worked on the tape recorder and started again. They do this about four or five times. Finally, Volker gave him the thumbs up and Ellington played. Volker never got to get the tape recorder to work. So we don't have a recording of that. Ellington played an uncredited role in the movie, Pie Eye. He appears at the dance scene at the Mount Shasta Inn. That's Mount Shasta today. It's by Michigami. Um, this is how it looked when they filmed the movie. They filmed the scene at night during the day, and you can see the blackout curtains on the win windows of the inn there. Now, why am I showing you this picture of the, of the courtroom here? First of all, if you ever tour it, take a close look at the steps, because you can see they're all marked and scarred by moving the heavy equipment up and down the stairs to film inside the courtroom. This is Volker's Supreme Court portrait, which of course wasn't there at the time. And then why am I showing you this men's room door? Well, in the movie, they took off the men's room sign and they put law library on that door. So when you see the judge open the door and supposedly look into the law library, he's really looking into the men's room. The law library scene was filmed at the Carnegie Library near Volker's home. And Preminger was such a stickler for details that he had the crew bring all the books from the courtroom law library, which was too small for filming, and replaced all the books in the Carnegie Library with the law books for the filming of the scene and then switched them all back up. As I said, the cast was from Hollywood. Here they are arriving by train. Uh, this is Arthur O'Connell who suffered pneumonia and spent uh, a large part of the filming uh, away by himself in the rectory. The priest of the local rectory gave him a room to sleep in, and he, he stayed there. The cast dined every night at the Mather Inn, and this became a very popular tourist attraction while the cast was living there and dining. 
They had two seatings every night. People took trains from all over Michigan and Wisconsin to try to get into the Mather Inn while the celebrities were eating there. The movie premiered in Detroit, but there was a soft premiere in Ishpeming and Marquette and, and Preminger donated all the money to charity. This is the world premiere in Detroit and Anatomy of a Murder was named Michigan's product of the year in 1959. This is the autograph wall. It is now the basement of Globe Printing in Ishpeming. At the time, it was the Roosevelt Club, or what Volker called Ishpeming's Club 21. The Mather would close down at about eight, so the cast and crew would walk over to the Roosevelt. They would go downstairs where they would have drinks, they would eat, they would dance, Ellington would play the piano, they would do impromptu plays. Near the end of the filming, Eve Arden said, you have to write your name on the wall if you wanna get paid. So over the next several days, people wrote their name on the wall. All the names were painted over with red or black paint, and then a protective coating was put over it. And if you go to Globe Printing and ask, uh, Stacy will probably take you downstairs and let you look at the wall. This gives you an idea of the size of the scale of the wall, and it's usually covered by these drapes or blankets to protect it from all the printing ink that is used down there in the basement. With the proceeds that John got from the movie, he purchased an old lumber interest called it Uncle Tom's Cabin, and he would go there almost every day where he would fish. Um, I got to know the family very well. They took me out there. It's not open to the public generally, but I got to see the cabin. The interior has been preserved just the way it was when John was out there. Uh, this is a photo I took of Frenchman's Pond, which is truly an idyllic place. John had two fish cars. Uh, interesting thing about the fish cars, uh, he would carry a rake in the back of the fish car. So when he would drive off road to one of his secret fishing spots, he would rake over the tire treads so nobody could find out where he was going. And here he is later at life at the cabin and doing what he wanted to do whenever he could, and that is fishing. As I said, I'm not gonna spend time talking about the commentary or the reflections. These are the chapters, and I'd be happy to chat about any of this if anybody is, is interested in any of this. Uh, I like to close with a couple things. If you've seen the movie, this is the still from the last scene in the movie. And what happens is Paul Beegler drives out with Parnell McCarthy to Perkins Trailer Park to collect on the promissory note that he's owed for defending Lieutenant Mannion. And Mannion and his wife in the trailer are nowhere to be find, found. The caretaker gives Beagle a note from Mannion that says he was overcome by an irresistible impulse and had to leave. Parnell McCarthy says something about poetic justice and Paul Beagler hangs the broken high heel shoe on the edge of the trash can. What happened in real life? Volker got in the car. There was no Parnell McCarthy. He was a creation. He drove out to Perkins Park. 
Lieutenant Peterson had given a note to the caretaker who handed it to him that said he was overcome by an irresistible impulse. And the shoe was already hanging on the side of the trash can. <laughs> that is one example of how authentic to the real movie, to the real life trial, the movie and the novel were. I've read the record of trial, and I would say that well over 80% of the dialogue you see in the movie is taken verbatim from the record of trial. Oh. I'll quote, I'll finish with this. Uh, as I said, I was, had access to Volcker's journals. It was a very intimate experience because you're basically reading somebody's diary. And it's also a humbling experience because he just jotted this down in a journal and you can see what beautiful writing this is. And when I read this, I, I, I literally paused and had to catch my breath because I felt like he was talking to me as I was trying to write a book about him. And what he says here is, every man, every person leaves the seeds of an absorbing biography. Things that would attract no notice whatsoever if the subject remained obscure. By the way, he wrote this long before Anatomy of a Murder. If the subject remained obscure, take on vast significance if he achieves some sort of special fame. Scholars will dig and vie to find them. This is my journal. Many obscure souls write journals or whatnot. When they die, it is ordinarily used to start a fire. But if he becomes famous or notorious, the poor scribbling will be saved and preserved and quoted and misquoted. And terrible is the significance that will be allowed to this most insane device. I have a notion to become famous just to prove the point. <laughs> but even if I could, I should hesitate to forsake the joys of anonymity and the solid animal comfort of obscurity. Must do an essay on that someday. <laughs> so this is my book. I'm very honored and humbled that it was selected as one of the notable books. Uh, it's the first book I wrote, and on my bucket list was to always write a novel, and I was inspired to write a novel in the style of John Volker. Oh, by the way, my, the, the book has now been also selected as a semifinalist for the Royal Palm Award in Florida, but as I said, I was inspired to write a novel, so this is my first novel. It's at the printer right now. It is a courtroom thriller, and it's sort of tried to be authentic to the style of John Volker. This is my email address, and if anyone is interested in ordering a copy of the novel, it's $30, including shipping. I will send it off to you. It's close to 600 pages. It's a, it's a substantial work. I overwrote like Volker, but I don't have to worry about getting a publisher to publish it. And it's a, a trial that takes place in the early 80s in Korea. And I was assigned as a judge advocate defense counsel in Korea at that time. And I don't know because it took place in Korea if it's eligible for a UP Notable Book Award. But if it is, I'll certainly submit it uh, next year for your consideration. So with that, um, that concludes the prepared remarks that I had, and I wanted to 
leave how much time anybody ever want, wants to take for questions or discussion. I thank you very much for your attention. How close is the uh, Searching for a Lily book uh, based on the actual trial? Well, it's not, it's not based on any actual trial that I tried, okay? Um, I talk about a trial that I actually tried that I sort of drew inspiration from Volcker in the epilogue to my Dissecting Anatomy book. This is the trial I always fantasized about having a chance to, trial, uh, to try, but never did. I never defended a murder trial. I, you know, I've had rape cases, but, but this is a this is a murder trial involves a congressman's son and pilots and all of that. So it's a, it's a very high profile type of case. Well, it's, I'm gonna get it. it's a lawyer's war story, you know, and lawyers <laughs> love to tell war stories and I don't have to, this is the first time I've ever written anything fiction, first of all, which was um, a real learning process for me. Uh, but it's the first time I never had to worry about footnotes and sourcing everything. So it, so it sort of provided a lot of freedom for me. What would this character say? Whatever I wanted to say in this situation. So that was very liberating. Great presentation. Um, Jean, I have a question. I really enjoyed your book. And Anatomy of Murder was one of my favorite books. I've read it several times. And when I see the movie, I always come back to Lieutenant Peterson you know, whatever became of him. And knowing that you were JAG, couldn't he have been brought up on charges through the military? I mean, at the very least, it was conduct unbecoming an officer, you know? But yeah, well, let me take those, let me take those one at a time. Okay. First of all, whatever became of Peterson, I, one of the great things about presenting this, especially the so many different venues I have presented it to Upper Peninsula audiences, including relatives of uh, Volker and people who were who lived in Marquette and Ishpeming when the case actually took place is that I've learned a lot through these presentations. Well, one of the things that uh, whatever happened to Lieutenant Peterson, first of all, I, we, we know for sure that they got divorced shortly after the trial was over. Um, if you look, do a computer search of what happened to Lieutenant Peterson. The predominant story was he died in a plane crash a few years later. But then at one of the presentations, I had a, a lawyer who came up to me afterwards and had done a lot of ancestry research. And it shows that Lieutenant Peterson actually served out the rest of his army career. I think he moved to Illinois and died you know, maybe in the 70s or something like the 1970s or something like that. So he didn't die in the plane crash as is commonly um, uh, seen if you, if you Google it. In terms of could he be tried by the army? Technically he could because double jeopardy wouldn't apply. Double jeopardy basically says not to get too much in the weeds. Somebody can't be tried twice for the same crime but they can't be tried twice for the same crime by the same sovereign. Peterson was tried in this case by the state of Michigan and the army is a federal sovereign, it's a different sovereign. So presumably he could have been tried. There are a couple reasons why he probably wouldn't be tried. One is as a policy, the military will rarely try a case 
that the state has already tried, just as states rarely will do it if the military has tried the case, just as a matter of the term is comedy you sometimes see uh, used. Plus, it would be very difficult as a practical matter to try to convict him because he had been acquitted already in court, basically, of, of all of this. So, um, uh, plus, I, I don't think the army really had much of an interest in, in trying to try this. So he was never tried and basically served out the rest of his career and retired. Jane, I have a couple questions. Mm -hmm. um, I was always wondering why they didn't, why Ben Gazzara never wore a mustache to really portray the accurate look, so to speak. Of Peterson. Yeah, I've never seen anything in the literature that describes that or explains that. So I'm not sure why I, I assume it was just an artistic choice that Preminger made, but why I really can't tell you. Okay. And the second question is, I, I understand that he left the irresistible impulse, but Volker had no way of recouping money from him, knowing that he could be traced through the military? Well, what happened is I think Volker had a $3,000 he was charging him for the trial. And I think Peterson gave him $250. And he had Peterson sign a promissory note for the rest of it. Um, Peterson had said that a bunch of his uh, fellow soldiers were going to chip in for like a defense fund. Volker complains in his journals that they chipped in, you know, just a few bucks. <clears throat> um, he was never really able or had much of a stomach to track down Peterson. Now, the reason that he Volker had the Luger, which you saw me holding and went to the Michigan archives, and I don't think you could do this today. But basically, the local sheriff gave it to Volker after the acquittal because that would help defray Volker's expenses. At least he would have got something for trying the case. So that's how Volker got in possession of the Luger. If Volker had any interest in pursuing it, of course, once the novel was published and then the movie was filmed, uh, he he didn't have need of money anymore and didn't have to go through the problem of chasing him down. Now, it's funny, just the opposite. Um, Mrs. Peterson and a couple of other folks connected with the Upper Peninsula uh, had lawsuits against Volker, uh, hmm. saying that he, uh, you know, had either reached a contract or had defamed their character. And Preminger wanted to make the movie so badly that he actually settled the lawsuits out of his own pocket Ooh. so he could get the rights to make the movie. Wow. Interesting. I did not know that. And did the, did the movie in the UP pre premiere in Ishpeming at the Butler Theater or was it also in Marquette at the Delft Theater? At both. Okay. And Preminger was grateful because what he would do is he would film all day and then he would go there in the evenings at the theater and he would cut and edit the film as he was filming it. That's one of the reasons why it got turned around so quickly. So as part of thanks for the cooperation of the people in the Butler Theater and all that, 
he did uh, sort of a soft premiere in Ishpeming and Marquette and gave all of the proceeds to charities, to local charities up there. Interesting. And then the final question, if you get a chance when all was done, I'd be interested to learn more about the ethical dilemma, um, yeah. your chapter on ethical dilemma. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I'll be happy to, to stay on and chat with you about any of that, so. Okay. I got a quick question. Just, I know that it inspired you to become an attorney and a, law, a lawyer. What about anatomy of a murder inspired that? Well, um, it's funny. I, I uh, and I talk about this some in the preface to the novel is that I really didn't have a firm idea of what I wanted to do in terms of a career until I saw Anatomy of a Murder. And I had vaguely thought about being um, a doctor or a lawyer or a professor. I ruled out being a doctor pretty quickly because I don't like seeing the sight of blood and, and people who are sick and injured and all of that. So I, what, I became a criminal lawyer, so go figure. But. Um, uh, when I saw anatomy, I, I thought, well, there, this is so real and important, and it's kind of a criminal trial is kind of what stops us from taking the law in our own hands. And it's quite a compact to think about how all these people who are so aggrieved and the emotions are so high and all of this is entrusted to the law and to the judgment of 12 strangers on how the, the government doesn't decide it, an intellectual doesn't decide it, um, a computer doesn't decide it, it's people. And, and I just found something, yeah. I just found that to be fascinating and important. Okay, take it away. Next question, John. Yes, thank you. Gene, I loved your presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm a career prosecutor, federal prosecutor, and uh, from the Detroit area. And just a short story, short story to tell you and then a question. But I, I saw the movie when I was young and don't really recall seeing it the first time that well. And then I was working in in Kiev, Ukraine, believe it or not, in 2010. And I was, I was, I went through a metro station and it had a lot of used books, mostly in Cyrillic. But I found a copy of Anatomy of Murder. I always wanted to read it. And I pulled it off and bought it and took it home and read it. And then I used it for teaching in Ukraine and in Turkey, where I was stationed at different times by the Department of Justice to teach about the adversarial system because I think it's one of the best films to, to demonstrate what a trial looks like in America. And in particular, what a jury trial is about because most continental systems don't have juries and they're very skeptical of the idea of a jury. And like you were alluding to at the end, I think uh, Volker mentioned it as being one of the a small miracle of democracy is every single jury trial in America. And I, I really believe that, feel that in my heart. And can I tell you a quick follow-up story to that? Sure. Kreminger uh, was speaking in 
Russia, the Soviet Union, and they had done a, a screening of the film, I guess it was dubbed, and then he took questions and the Russians couldn't understand why he wasn't convicted. And Preminger tried to talk to them about, you know, presumption of innocence and the role of the jury and all of that. And it just did not resonate or compute at all with their sensibilities on how a criminal trial should work. I'm not so surprised by you that. say that. I'm not surprised by that at all. In fact, one of one of the, the women that I showed this film to in Ukraine is with us tonight, Tatiana. Um, and she's now living in Syracuse, New York, um, after fleeing Ukraine. Um, so, but I I guess my question for you was was actually about Otto Preminger, because I in some of the background research I did, I learned that he was a, a trained lawyer in the Austro-Hungarian times, and his father was a oh. prosecutor general, I believe, and uh, and that he was so impressed by the American jury system, and that's why he was felt compelled to write this or do this film. I don't know if that's true, but that's yes, yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. Uh, his father was a very well-known and respected lawyer in Austria, and I know Preminger. I don't. I don't remember if he was a lawyer, but I know he was legally educated and had graduated from law school. I think Preminger was, was Preminger gone to law school. <laughs> I believe so in Austria. I think Preminger was attracted to the project for three reasons. Uh, one is his background in the law and his father's background in the law. Um, two, he saw it as a as a way to make money because this was a huge, huge bestseller and he saw it as being potentially very lucrative. And three, he loved to tackle controversial topics. Uh, he'd done The Man with the Golden Arm about drug addiction. Um, he, he had done, uh, even his war movie in harm's way was, was very edgy in the way it was done. When Anatomy was done, it, when Anatomy was first released, it was banned in several cities, including Chicago and Boston. Uh, Stewart's father was so disappointed that Stewart was in the movie, he wrote a letter to the editor urging people not to see the movie. Preminger received all sorts of hate mail because of the way it treated these, it treated a rape case the way it be, would be treated in a real court. In fact, um, the censors tried to get Preminger to make all sorts of concessions, which he wouldn't do, a lot of it because that language was based on a, what you found in the record of trial. The only concession that he made was he changed the word penetration to violation. And other than that, he stuck to his guns. And uh, uh, the, one, the movie was so controversial that when the filming was done, all the cast did some cement impressions of their hands and signed the cement. And that was gonna be put out in front of the courthouse. Well, so many people, I mean, a lot of, most of the people loved the movie because of the stars and what it did for the area and all that. But some people were so upset because of the content of the movie that they didn't put the cement um, 
uh, <laughs> blocks out in front of the courthouse and years later was put out in front of a theater. But um, uh, so it was, a, it was a polarizing film in that way. Well, I can't, read, can't wait to read your book. I'm heading up north in a couple of days and I'm gonna sit down and read that book and maybe even make my way up to the courthouse. Yeah, it's uh, it's if you go to the courthouse, uh, uh, visit the law library men's room just to peek in like they did. <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, by the way, I'm not a realtor, but I just saw the other day. I googled it. The Lumberjack Tavern is for sale. Oh, bourgeois mm -hmm. owns it. Is is apparently selling it. His asking price is four hundred fifty thousand. I'm though I'm sure he could be negotiated down. But uh, you got a piece of history right there. Okay, the uh, our niece of John Volker wants to say. I just want to say thank you very much for all the work and effort that you put into this. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, thank you very much. I really, really appreciated seeing all the work that you did into this and everything about my family. Thank hey, you. Can I ask which, 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 I assume one of the daughters is your mother? No. Oh, no, I've got it wrong then. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, you wouldn't be a granddaughter. Okay, so, okay, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. It's my um, father's uncle. He's my great uncle. Oh, okay, all right. Father and his brothers were, you know, the, the first. Um, I see. Father would have been the first nephew, and then I'm the niece. From okay. My because I got to know Gracie and Julie as well as Woody pretty well. Right. And I, I am a Volker. So. Uh -huh. oh. Great. Yeah. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. On the supporting characters, uh, uh, you mentioned that one, two of them, have gone, was the one that played Mr. Whipple, another one uh -huh. played Mr. Wilson and the Dennis the Menace ones. Yeah. Uh, and there's a couple others that, that were uncredited. I, I thought I recognized, and I, I don't know if you, you recognize these names from the, the ones that were written on that uh, board. John Quallen. I thought he played that one Finnish guy, the Finnish jailkeeper who let Jimmy Stewart in. Yeah, yeah. He he, he was in a lot of Westerns. And uh, look, a fellow by the name of Lavoisier played the... Um, clerk of the court that called the court to to order. He was the actual clerk of the court up there. That's one of the things that Volker insisted upon is the way the script was originally written, the judge was gonna call the court to order. And Volker says, that's not the way it's done in the real world. The clerk calls the court to order and they actually had the real clerk of the court serve as the clerk there. How about that caretaker? Was that uh, the trailer court? Was that the actual caretaker, I believe? No, I don't think so. But um, uh, Chenoweth's friend in real life, the guy who was played by uh, um, the mayor from Jaws, Murray Hamilton, he played the innkeeper in the movie. He and his wife played the innkeeper and his wife in the movie. Another interesting casting decision was Orson Bean as a psychiatrist. 
Carson Bean was a little known comedian at the time and had never done any really acting. And he played the the, the army psychiatrist. And then I thought uh, that an informant that came to see uh, Arthur O'Connell in an outdoor uh, thing, was that Jimmy Conlon? You know, I, I don't know the name. You're talking about the, the snitch, the guy who was the, the I, I don't remember his name, but I remember Preminger wanted him in the movie as one of the, the, the supporting characters. And Preminger was originally going to have him play another part. And he asked if he could play sort of the disreputable fellow prisoner snitch because he never gets to play a guy like that. So Preminger said, okay, you go ahead, you can play him. And that's how he wound up playing that character. Well, this is a different one that I guess came to see till it talked to Arthur O'Connell at an outdoor uh, lunchroom or something, I remember. It just seemed like it was Jimmy Conlon, an old actor that- uh, Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Once. Yeah. How many of those are there, are those actors still alive? I think Catherine Crosby is still alive. She might be. I know Orson Bean was one of the last, or one of the most recent to pass away. He passed away a few years ago. Um, I they, don't know. If, I don't know if Catherine Crosby is still alive. When they made that uh, that uh, Anatomy of Fifty Nine thing, Crosby was alive. That that guy who played the snitch was alive, and I think then. Ben Gazzara was alive at that particular time. Yeah, Ben Gazzara has passed away. Um, I, I talked to a couple of, you know, the scene in front of the Thunder Bay Inn where the kids are playing. I talked to a couple of those kids who were now, you know, um, closer to my age or older uh, is, when I was interviewing people for the for the book, uh, they, there's a, they told me about a time when um, Volker took Lee Remick, who everybody says is uh, uh, more beautiful than even she appears in the movies. Uh, he got a bottle of bourbon and two tin cups and took Lee Remick for a Jeep ride into the woods. And they came back and a lot of the bottle of bourbon was gone. And I know people who still have those tin cups, but. Uh... Thank you. Any, Thank you. Any other questions or comments tonight before we let Jean go? I just, I'll just do my close. So next month we will be talking about this book. These are the two books that Ann Dahlman has written. Katie and the bear necklace, and then Katie and the birch box, birch box, birch bark box. Sorry. <laughs> um, so it's talking about trying new things. This is very exciting. I actually was one of the editors for the book that we're going to be talking about next month. And I can guarantee it's very good, short and good. And even though it's written really for children, you know, middle schoolers, you will like it too. So thank you all who came on tonight. If you want to stay, please do. Otherwise, we hope to see you. Um, uh, it's going to be the second. It's always the second Thursday. So that'll be September. I can tell you here in a minute. I'll, I'll look really fast. Um, we're looking at next month. We're going to meet 6 o'clock Central, 7 o'clock Eastern Time on September 
Um, oh, there we go. September 14th. Well, I can't thank you enough. This was, I, I know we went a little over time, but I think it was well. Oh, no, no, my pleasure. And um, we appreciate you. And like I say, I look forward to that great big book that you finished. And as soon as it is uh, printed, we're going to get one here in our library. Okay. And I don't know what the rules are for the Upper Peninsula consideration for the notable book. Because it doesn't take place in the UP, it takes place in Korea. On, I don't know if he'll pop back on, but I I think you can be a con. I don't know the rules. I I know because I'm not part of that thing. Um, but I uh, I know if you if you're from the UP, you're eligible, and if the book's set in the UP, you're eligible. No, um, I don't know. That's two strikes. That's two strikes. Okay. So maybe there's a third. I don't know. Victor will have to get back to you tomorrow and let you know all the ins and outs of that part of it. I just host these Zooms. That's right, all. right. But um, uh, it would uh, hopefully it would be it would be a nice uh, contender. I think it sounds like a good story. But have a good evening, everyone, and thank you so thank much. Thank you all. Thank you all. And you have my email address. If anyone wants to get yep. in touch with me, I encourage you just send me an email. I will send that out tomorrow, and then like these. These Zooms get recorded. So as soon as the recording's done, I will send that out to everybody as well. Great. Okay. Well, thank you, Evelyn, for hosting and, and pass on my thanks to Victor also. I will do. All right. Thank you. You've been watching the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. To join or for more information, please visit us at www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com.